Hello, baseball fans. This week's podcast is brought to you by Blackmore Entertainment Group, a full-scale promotion firm that hosts sponsors and promotes various events and concerts. We have DJs and event planners who are able to plan, coordinate, and execute your event. Music and entertainment is our business. We love to make it your pleasure. I can smell how you doing guys welcome back this is the second episode of the ballpark bums um i really enjoyed doing the first episode i had a lot more fun doing the second episode so we're doing it i mean got a lot of positive feedback and so we're gonna keep doing this uh today's episode's a little bit different uh it's a more of a two-parter we have our interview with uh baseball player by the name of Boots Day, who is currently a hitting coach for the Evansville Otters, and he played six years in the majors in the 70s, and I had a lot of fun interviewing him. And then we're also also including a panel discussion about Jackie Robinson. It's a really cool discussion that I found shortly after I uploaded the first episode. Um, so I think you guys will really enjoy it, and we're going to jump into the panel discussion about Jackie Robinson right now. We're not going to waste any time today, and uh, here it is. So plug in your earphones, grab a drink, do whatever you do, and we'll be back with this discussion. This podcast is an official supporter of Attitude Designs. Custom, quality, fun screen printing since 2000. If you'd like more information on how to get your logo on a t-shirt or a sweater, please visit attitudedesigns.com. So uh, my name is Chris Gorman. Um, I'm co-chair of Spectrum here at the Met. I want to welcome you all to the museum. Um, Tonight we've organized a panel uh, in honor of breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball, uh, which is a superb exhibition that's on view right now until June 17th. Um, we're also celebrating the Jefferson Burdick Collection, which is one of the most comprehensive collections of baseball cards in America. Um, so with that, I'd like to introduce our panelists. Um, to my left, New York Times sports columnist and author of $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete, Bill Roden. Next on our, on our panel team here is uh, columnist Syracuse Post Standard and author of uh, The Ashes of Lou Gehrig and winner of the 2008 Ernie Pyle Award for Human Interest Writing, Sean Kirst. <laughs> Next to Sean is former Major League Baseball player and two-time National League MVP, Dale Murphy. <laughs> and next to Dale is author vice chairperson of the Jackie Robinson Foundation and daughter of Jackie Robinson, Sharon Robinson. Uh, I'd just like to give a special shout out uh, to current Major League pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels in town for a series against uh, the New York Yankees, Mr. LaTroy Hawkins. Sharon, let's go back to October 1945. Um, your father signs with the uh, Montreal Royals, part of the Brooklyn Dodgers organization. Tell us about his first spring training in 1946 um, and the months that followed. Yes, um, well, for, in 45, actually, my father met with Branch Rickey in his office, and they 
um, had that famous meeting where Branch Rickey did basically did prepared him for what he was going to be facing through role playing. And it was a very tough uh, meeting between a black man and a, and a white man at a time when black men and white men didn't sit down to negotiate any kind of business contract. Um, and Branch Rickey is much older than my father and sort of. So they get past that point, and my father says, yes, I'll, I, I'll do it. And uh, Branch Rickey then assigns him to the Montreal team um, because he felt that it would be a, a smoother entry um, for, for my father. And it turned out to be a very, in Montreal, the, the Canadians welcomed my parents, actually, both of them. And uh, they were very proud of, of the role they played and, and how much support they gave to um, the entire experiment, but when they traveled south of Canada um, is when they ran into um, all, all kinds of forms of racism, from death threats to physical attacks uh, to verbal attacks to isolation, um, and Branch Rickey had structured it so that that first spring training, my mother would travel with my father, but I'll just give you one example. They... Uh, we all know Sanford, Florida now, is that correct? Well, Sanford, Florida was the town that Branch Rickey had selected for the first spring training. And when my parents arrived, uh, they were traveling with the columnist, uh, Wendell Smith, from Pittsburgh, yes. And uh, they, put, they couldn't stay in the same hotel with the rest of the team, so they stay, stayed in a doctor's house in town. Um, and they were just unpacking when Wendell comes racing back to the house and says, we've got to go now. And you just, you know, didn't tell my father what was going on. And, you know, my father's really annoyed because, you know, what's going on? And as it turns out, they said a mob was coming after my father because they refused. They were not going to allow a black, uh, them to field a black and white team. So that's sort of Sanford's uh, history, some 60 five plus years ago. As you can see, it hasn't. Um, <laughs> um, you, you touched on Branch Rickey a bit, um, and Bill, you wrote some about Branch Rickey in your book. Um, what can you tell us about him and his relationship with Jackie Robinson? Yeah, we just talked about this. I mean, it was really a very fascinating relationship, and I think that's that always sort of gets to one of the crux. I mean, you know, Jackie Robinson has so many different <coughs> tentacles depending on how old you are, whether you saw him play, whether you didn't, whether you went to North South. But I think that um, the relationship at first, I think, was, uh, you know, employee-employer, uh, with, with a twist. I mean, this was a very historic relationship. So I think that's, that, that's what separates from employer. But I think at the end of the day, it's still employee-employer. Uh, you still have to perform. And... Uh, I know how, you know, I, meaning Bill Branch Ricky, I know how difficult this is going to be. I know it's going to be hard. But at the end of the day, you've got to perform and probably have more pressure on you because you're not just, it's not like you're the average ball player. You know, you're carrying a lot of, a lot of stuff on your plate, on your shoulders. So I think um, during those years, I think it was just employee, employer. I, I think that, uh, as as they as, as Jackie retired, as time went on, and I think the depth and the magnitude of what they each had accomplished uh, uh, blossomed. I think the, the friendship blossomed because if you 
that relationship was probably one of the most unique relationships between an African-American and a white man. I don't want to be too dramatic, but in, in, in at least the modern history of the United States. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's one of those things first. And, and remember, as, as, as Sharon said, Jackie was a young man. So this is also a mentorship relationship as well. You're trying to learn a lot of different things. So, uh, But I think that the, uh, I read somewhere, where I think Jackie was saying that if it were not for Branch Rickey, he probably would not be in baseball. He probably would not have been in baseball. Now you touched on performance. And uh, Dale, you came up in the Atlanta Braves organization. Um, played minor leagues as all ball players tend to before they make it to the big show. Tell us a little bit about that and about um, some of the ups and downs of those days when you think, oh, I'm going to make it, those days where you, you're struggling a bit. Well, yeah, I think a lot of uh, people look back on my career and think about my days with the Atlanta Braves, and I'm thankful for that because my path to the Atlanta Braves wasn't very smooth or straight. Um, I had some days where uh, I felt like quitting, actually. <laughs> I was a catcher at one time, and one of my teammates said, well, Murph, that's a matter of opinion. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm thankful that I, I, I came up through the Atlanta Braves organization, uh, and, and Bobby Cox was there. Um, I was really lucky. My first boss when I signed um, a professional contract was Bill Lucas. Bill Lucas was... Uh, for all intents and purposes, his title wasn't general manager, but he was the general manager of the... When I signed, he was the minor league director of player personnel. And uh, the next year, Ted Turner made him, um, I don't know exact title, but he was basically running everything and uh, the first uh, um, African-American in that, in that position. Um, Bill uh, tragically lost his life in, uh, from a, a stroke, an aneurysm in 1978. Uh, he made had a great impact on my career. He believed in me and I, uh, gave me a chance when I was struggling trying to find a position. And Bill uh, tragically lost his life and uh, I was very thankful for the chance to know him. He was a person that didn't see black or white and uh, he, he saw the goodness in people and it was a, I was very blessed to be able to play for him and it worked out cause, mainly because he believed in me. Because okay. um, you talked about pressure and, and some days, you know, feeling uh, down on yourself as a player, and all players um, experience that. But um, there's one city in particular, Sean, that uh, Jackie Robinson uh, recalled being one of the harshest on him. Um, and when we talk about pressure, we talk about the pressure of just trying to make the team. There were other pressures on Jackie Robinson, as Sharon and Bill have talked about. What were what happened in what, what city was it? When, uh, when I was a child, I read, as, as many of us from our generation did, I read a lot of the great you know, biographies of the, these guys from the Golden Age. And I remember reading a couple of biographies of Jackie where he spoke about, uh, where he talked about being in Syracuse and what was known as the Black Cat incident, that, that he was playing there uh, from 1946 when he first came in. And um, some of the guys in the Chiefs threw a black cat onto the field and uh, said, hey, Jackie, here's your cousin. Uh, to which he responded by double. He got a double. So, so, so when I when I arrived, and, uh, and I also want to say as we could go, what a pleasure and an honor it is just to sit on the same panel as you, and, and to thank you for everything your family has done for America. But when I arrived in Syracuse as, as a 
young writer, I was always stunned by the, the fact that the town had not come to terms with this and, and began to do some research and, and found some articles where, where, where at the end of the 1946 season when the Associated Press asked Jackie uh, what was the hardest city in the International League, he was, even then, you remember all the restraints he was under, that he couldn't really just say, this city treated me awfully, but he said, in Syracuse they rode me pretty hard. He singled out Syracuse. And, I started to go back, and it turned out that that entire team was from the Deep South. And, and uh, um, I, I spoke to a guy named Garden Del Savio, a New Yorker who was on that team, who said, who remembered that uh, three players had to be restrained from taking the field in blackface again when, when they played against Jackie, that, uh, that um, pitchers had, on Syracuse had thrown on his head, at his head throughout the season. And what Del Savio remembered that has always stayed with him is you remember the situation where where he could not physically fight back, even when people were trying to harm him. And that Del Savio said that he would say to him, I barnstorm against this guy. If you taunt him, he's only going to play better. And that, that even when Jackie grounded out and they'd be screaming at him, the garden said the worst thing is you can scream at another human being. He would jog back above the dugout as close as he could come with his, with his head up and, and just ignore it and sort of just, just you know, take that abuse and, and get up the next time. Well, that was one way he dealt with it. And then, Sharon, what were some of the other ways uh, your father rose above that pressure? He, he wrote in his own book, in his autobiography, that there were times where he felt he was about to succumb to it, but he, he didn't. And how, how did he rise above that? Well, I think three basic things. His mother, his wife, and his faith. Um, and, you know, so when you got down, he used to believe that he was being tested and, you know, stay down for a minute, but you get back up. But he had ways to work out um, anger, too, um, and, and uh, some funny ways. He, he loved golf, and he would say, well, it's a little white ball. <laughs> <laughs> and Sean, I love that. I use that. I talk to kids all the time, and that's one of the, the stories that I talk about because I want them to understand that the strength of character that it took to hold back, and that it wasn't because he was accepting, you know, that. So as he, as he, um, he makes it to second, and then he's brought home. My father's brought home on that same black hat incident. So as you, Sean talked about how he would come close to the dugout. So as he was rounding that dugout, he looked over at the, uh, the Syracuse team and said, well, I guess my cousin's happy now. <laughs> so he always had his way of getting back without, you know, well, also included um, in the current exhibition of cards that are up is uh, a baseball card of Willie Mays. Um, Dale, growing up, yeah, you were a pretty big fan of his. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, uh, I'm born and raised in Portland, Oregon. But, uh, lived there until uh, I was about eight. And then for a couple of years, we lived uh, when I was nine and ten. We lived in the Bay Area. And then we eventually moved back to Portland. But while I was in the Bay Area, uh, one day my dad brought a glove home and said, Here, here's the new glove for you. It's the one Willie Mays uses. Of course, I was down there, and the Giants were there, and occasionally we'd go to the, the Giants game, and Willie was the guy. And uh, I said, so this is, this is Willie's glove. And when he said, this is the one Willie uses, I figured he meant that literally. <laughs> and uh, and uh, my first recollection of collecting cards is finding a Willie Mays card with him holding his glove <laughs> in the card. 
And I don't. I probably didn't need a magnifying glass back then because I could see, which I can't see anymore. But I, I looked at his glove. I looked at mine. And I, you know, across the road, the top of the web is the stitching. It goes around, so I counted the stitches on my on my glove. And I looked at his card, and I counted the stitches. And they were the same. They were the same. And I'm looking at that glove, and and it was uh, my mom and dad brought. I have my glove. I have it now at my house, but my mom and dad about six months ago brought it to me. And I pulled it out and I looked at it. And, and so I, now with, like, uh, with the internet, I started doing a search. Uh, the, the glove my dad got me was a, a McGregor kangaroo leather. Uh, it, I've got pictures of me playing at that age, and it looks like it covers half my body. And uh, it was, actually. Uh, you can't do that. You can't really get what a major league player now. They're $250, $300 gloves. But back then, you could go into a store and use the exact same model that he really used. And on the internet, they said, that is the exact model that he used. And so I thought that was pretty exciting. It wasn't literally his, but it was the exact same, obviously. I was sharing the story with my son, Chad, who's here, my oldest son, Chad, and I said, Chad, it was really interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I looked at these cards, and um, uh, that was probably, that was 19, you know, when I was 10, 1966. I, I didn't think at that time, and I, to me, that was an introduction to me that one of the great things about baseball, baseball cards and sports, at, at that point in my life, they were baseball players. I didn't, and my son Chad said, Dad, you mean the, the, the black players, the white players, the Dominican players, the Puerto Rican players? They were all in the same pack. And I said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> they were. I didn't ever think about that. And now knowing that not too many years earlier, um, now having read and found out that not that many years earlier in the minor leagues in the South, um, um, those players in the 50s, were not allowed into the city to stay at the, stay at the same hotel as the white players. And I just, I, I, I just you know, now that I've learned that, I, I can't imagine that. But my introduction to cards and baseball is that. And, and uh, I think it helped me uh, grow up without a feeling uh, that generation in, in, to a certain extent. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that introduction that didn't, didn't see color. And... Uh, it's a great memory for me. Thank you. Um, and Bill, in, in your view, um, and you touched on this in your book again, um, how did Willie Mays uh, change the game of baseball? Um, man, let's just put it, let's put it narrow story. Just, just one quick thing about the uh, my mentor. I worked my first newspaper job was Afro American newspaper, and my mentor was Sam Lacey, who was uh, you know just the great Sam Lacey. I think he died at age one hundred. And, um, and literally, he was 100. Uh, but he used to tell me these stories, you know. So uh, as I got older, it's kind of like with uh, uh, Jackie and with um, Branch. He became, we became more friends. And so the great thing about Sam is that he knew everybody. He knew who they really were. Uh, as I got older, it's kind of like with... Uh, uh, though I was liberal, and Sam's, oh, no, 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 let me tell you who this guy was. But one of the things he said is that, uh, you know, he was crusade. You know, there's this whole thing about the black players couldn't stay at the uh, at the uh, white hotels. So Sam, of course, and Wendell, 
they were crusading to get the guys the White Hotel, and the players were kind of pissed off. I said, wait, whoa, whoa, wait, you don't understand. We, you know, we're saying in the black neighborhood, we got a ball. We have no, we have no curfew. We got, and you said, you want to move us into the hotel, Sam? Why don't you, we understand where you're coming from, but why don't you just back off? You know? So there's always a reality of civil rights. But anyway, but, terms of, <laughs> but, but in terms of uh, Willie Mays, the only thing I could, because Willie Mays is kind of like, for me, talking about how high is up. So I could just narrow it down. Willie Mays, well, I grew up in Chicago, and, you know, the, the, the greatest group of play I ever saw was the San Francisco Giants. No offense to anybody here, but realistically, it was the San Francisco Giants with Willie Mays, Juan Marshall. So the basket catch, I must have spent my entire 10 and 11 years trying to do the basket catch. I mean, literally, I would stand out in the yard. I would stand out in the yard. And I would, like, throw the ball up and then just try to do like this. And the key thing with, with, the, bat, with the way Willie Mays did it, it was a whole idea of being effortless, effortless. And, I mean, I got hit in the head. I got hit. In, but what he taught me, though, what I got from Willie Mays was this whole notion of being cool, of, of making the most infinitely hard thing effortless. And I think that's the stylistic thing. That I think even beginning with your dad, bringing that thing in from, from the Negro Leagues, where style was very, very, very important. Not what you did, that was important too, but the way you did it. And Willie Mays, I remember I described him, I was, Ron Santo hit this like screaming thing that, that used to be the gap before Willie Mays. It used to be the gap. <laughs> and I remember, you know, Willie Mays had those glasses, you know, flipping down. And it was like, it was a screaming thing that looked like it was going to be a double or something. And Mays just seemed to just glide over and just kind of did like he got to it. The fans were going nuts and crazy. And he just kind of got to it, just did like this. And flipped it back like that was the easiest thing he had done all year. So, so anyway, so you asked me about his, but I think that was probably his signature on the game. He was, remember, I think when Jackie came in, Jackie was older. When Willie got there, Willie was 19. And so that was the beginning of getting young, seeing what a young black athlete looked like in his prime. So I think that was the style. And then young was, was probably his big you know, contribution. Now we're talking about icons tonight. We're talking about um, a, lot of, a lot of things that uh, changed baseball. Um, and, you know, we're talking about some superstars. And Jefferson Burdick really was a superstar collector. Um, there is uh, one of the, if not the rarest card in existence in the Verdict Collection. Um, it's the Honus Wagner T206 card. Um, Sean, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, why is that card so rare? Tell us a little bit about Honus Wagner. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny when you think about baseball cards now, we associate them with bubble gum. In uh, 1909, the uh, American Tobacco Company releases a series of Major League Baseball cards, three or 400 cards. And uh, they used them as a backing for 10 cigarettes. And, and, you know, you bought a pack of cigarettes and you got this card. And uh, at that time, 1909, arguably the greatest player in baseball was Honus Wagner, Hans Wagner for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I, I was just reading a, a piece the other day that noted that the season he had, I believe, in 1909, in many ways, was the greatest offensive season for any National League player until Barry Bonds broke the home run record 10 years ago. 
And, uh, you know, so Wagner finds out about these baseball, this, this uh, baseball card and this pack of cigarettes, and, and he writes to the company and says, I want you to stop distributing it. There's, there's all sorts of debate now about whether he did that because he was against smoking or, uh, because, or whether it was a monetary thing. He chewed tobacco. But, but even then, there was a, as, as there is now, there was somehow this distinction between dipping and chewing and smoking, for better or worse. But uh, so, so they recall him. They only, and, and historians differ on how many got out there, but, but the usual figure that gets thrown around is 50 to 200. And, and um, you know, years go by, and, and baseball cards reemerge in the 50s, and as they became this uh, burgeoning hobby and, and, and slowly became a business, this became the most coveted of baseball cards, worth literally millions now, well, at least one of them worth literally millions at auction. There's one, I think, in uh, St. Louis that um, you might go up to auction. I think the papers they were saying it might fetch something like $2.5 million. Oh, which is, um, for, for a small baseball card, that's a big chunk of change. Mm-hmm. Sean, are you going to... Um, no, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we'll all pitch in. Everybody in the crowd will contribute. Maybe we'll have a quarter of it. Um, the, uh, the thing I, I think about when I think about Honus Wagner, think about Jackie Robinson... Um, it's an idea of principle, um, and uh, Dale, since you know you retired from the game, I know you've been doing a lot of work with kids. Um, you have a couple books out. Uh, the scouting reports, I think, are in the titles there. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing um, with kids out um, around the country. Well, I've been uh, very fortunate with some friends of mine to form a, a character education foundation called the I Won't Cheat Foundation, where uh, the, the basic message is... Um, to kids that whatever you do in life, you can do it the right way. I think there's so many messages out there, and baseball has, has, has uh, had a few issues with this. All, a lot of the sports have. I think baseball's doing a lot better now, but we had a, a problem with telling kids that you, you uh, have to take this drug, you have to take that drug to be the best ball, baseball player that you could be. So that was real frustrating for me, so we formed this foundation, and that's basically what we try to let kids know is that you you can do whatever you want to do in life, and you can do it the right way. You don't have to uh, cut corners. You don't have to bend the rules. Um, one of the challenges for, for – so that was real frustrating for me, so we formed this foundation, and that's basically what – another time, but, that you know, not, not everybody was doing that in the game. The perception to the kids was that that – must this must be what you have to do that was real frustrating to me and to a lot of players so that's um, you know I enjoy sharing that message with kids and uh, and I appreciate where baseball has gone now we made great the perception to the kids was that that must this must be and um, and sending a good message to kids uh, that's that's what it's all about to me um, and that leads really nicely um, into uh, something that Sean wrote at the end of an article in uh, 1997. Uh, it was an article about Jackie Robinson in Syracuse. Um, and he was talking in that article about... Um, it's all about it to me. Um, and that leads really nicely. Um, and what Sean finished the article with was the question that after, at that time it was 50 years, so now we're at 65, year, 65 years since then, um, is... What do we do about it? And uh, I just wanted to go one by one and um, maybe just say a bit about uh, where we're at today, baseball-wise. Dale touched on a little bit. Um, we we all know, uh, I think, that Jackie Robinson Day in Major League Baseball is coming up on Sunday. Um, so, Bill. Um, you know, I, I think that um, 
there's, 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 we have a danger, and particularly at this particular time, when things just become cliche. So you say Jackie Robinson is here, Jackie Robinson, but we kind of gloss over what he means. And, and, and this is sort of what it means to me. There, there's, I live in Harlem, USA, and um, I live uh, right across from Yankee Stadium. So right down the bluff, there's Jackie Robinson, uh, the, the Jackie Robinson Park. Down where, so anyway, so one day, you know, when I walk down the street, there's a whole little collection of guys who are always talking sports and talking trash. There's one guy who came out, and he was just said, Mr. Rowe, Mr. Rowe, you know, why doesn't anybody talk about um, Michael, uh, Michael Jordan anymore? And everybody's talking about LeBron James and all that kind of stuff. And so, and I said, you know, uh, you, know you know this park down there is Jackie Robinson Park, right? See, now, why do you think Jackie Robinson died in, you know, 1972, okay? And it was like 2003. Now, why do you think that people are still talking about Jackie Robinson? Now, with Michael Jordan, some people talk about how, how many points he scored and all that, but, but, you know, people kind of, but why do you think 30-something years later, people are still talking about Jackie Robinson? And so he kind of thought about it. And we started talking, and it's, well, it was because... Not it was because of what he stood for. He stood for some things that were beyond just balls and strikes. He stood for the greater good. He stood for character. He stood for courage. He stood, you know, and in, in all of our lives, it's sort of what are you going to stand for? Do you stand for the, 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 the short and narrow thing? Or do you stand for something that's going to make an impact? That's something that's larger than yourself. That that's why people remember Jackie Robinson. That's why people remember people like you know, Joe Lewis. And that's why there are a lot of guys we talk about who, after you quit, they'll forget who you were or what you did because you didn't really stand for anything. So to me, if you ask the lingering thing of Jackie Robinson, it's, it's, it's about character and heroics and doing things by example. Just uh, two really quick things. I, I wanted to finish the last thought when you asked me about Burdick and the, the Wagner card. Uh, that this guy from Syracuse, Jefferson Burdick, this this uh, elderly bachelor dying of a neuromuscular disease with with you know didn't have two nickels to rub together. That he donated one to the Met, understanding the the power of posterity, and that that you know that card is worth a million dollars, and it's here because this guy gave it to us. But your question about about um, Jackie and what do we do now, in, in a different part of my life, I've, I've worn a different hat and have coached in city little leagues where, where I had the, uh, the honor, really, of meeting your mom, who was incredibly supportive of this. And, and uh, I'll hear so many people, so many coaches in little league baseball uh, around Syracuse, and I think nationally, who will say, because it's so easy, well, well, African-American children don't want to play baseball anymore. And, and my experience going to schools in the city, my, my wife's a teacher in the city, is that, is that kids want to play very much, but that we can't, use, we can't use the norms of 1957 anymore in attempting to attract these children, that you have kids in, in neighborhoods riddled with gun violence who aren't going to walk two miles to practice in another part of town, and, and that we've got to start meeting these kids where they are and that they want to play, they want to compete, but that the, the burden, the onus is on us to bring the game to them and not expect a seven-year-old to, to make a preposterously difficult decision to come to us. I, I, you know, I think the state, the, the state of the game of baseball is, is okay. I think there's some good things, but I have some real concerns. Um, 
one of the things I love about sports is is it, people come from all over the world. You, you you make a team based on your merit, you know, and and your representative of the community. And I don't think Major League Baseball really represents our community, uh, America, uh, the United States. We represent the world, and a lot of we 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 have players from uh, Latin America, Asia, Australia, and the and and here obviously. But I may be a little off on my statistics, but I think six percent. Six percent of the of the players in the major leagues are African American. Uh, I think a lot of people see a major league game and think, well, it's, there's 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 some some um, African Americans playing out there. Well, those are Latin Americans. I think we got to figure out what to do. I'm not saying I have the answer. I think I know part of the answer is it's it's economic. There's 25 scholarships in football. Um, basketball does a real good job of marketing. Baseball does not have a lot of scholarships available in college sports, so kids make an economic decision and say, I need my college paid for, I'm going to go play football. We've got to figure out what to do, either endow scholarships or something, make it attractive to everybody, um, uh, to kids all over. I, I really can't comment on the RBI program for Major League Baseball, but I do know in Atlanta I heard from somebody who's been involved in it that it wasn't a success. Now, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to, uh, yeah, they're, they're back in Atlanta. Oh, good, good. Uh, Cause I had, to, uh, they're doing well, good. That's why I, I talked to a guy that, that he was, he was a little frustrated. I think, I think baseball needs to, we got to figure out how to help these kids in some way. I think eco economically, because very few kids in college get scholarship money to play baseball. You don't have enough to go around. So they split up their scholarships. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's, that's good news. I'm, I'm glad to hear that about Atlanta because, um, we, we got to figure out what to do. I hear 6%. Is that right? It's nine. Well, there you go. It's getting better already. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, that, that, that's good, but that, that's, that's not enough. It, it's, it's not where it needs to be. We're, we're missing out on seeing some tremendous ball players and athletes that are not being exposed to baseball in the African-American community that, that I think would make, it just would, it would be better representation of, of America if we could figure out how to keep increasing that. So I'm, I hope I wasn't speaking out as, well, I was. I, I didn't have all my statistics, but uh, I, think, I think we can do a better job. You know, first, I'd like to uh, really thank LaTroy for coming out today because um, Latroy and I met years ago when I was in, going to school visit in, in uh, what's that, Minnesota? Jeez. Um, but in 19, uh, you will remember this, in 1997 when we celebrated the 50th anniversary, the players like Jackie Who. Um, so in 15 years, um, you know, we've come a long way in raising their awareness and have, having them feel a part of um, Jackie Robinson and that he is has a legacy and they're part of that legacy. So for Latroy to come out after a, a, on a game day um, and, and to be in the community and come by and see the, the card collection and uh, take me to dinner, it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> He's here with Alan Price from the Players Association. Now is, is, is Della here? Della. Della, would you please stand up? Del Britton Bays is the president of the Jackie Robinson Foundation. She's Allison's here too. She got better. Allison is here. Okay. 
Uh, Allison is with the Jackie Robinson Foundation. So, um, anyway, legacy. Um, you know, my mother has really led the way in terms of as a Jackie Robinson legacy. And, um, you know, baseball is a piece of it, um, but the Jackie Robinson Foundation, uh, Della, if you help me with the numbers here, we have... I don't know if you all heard that. 1,400 alum, college alum, about $15 million in scholarship support, 5-0, correct? And um, it's not just a district, over 39 years. Thank you. <laughs> my mother started six months after my father died, that I remembered. Um, but the important thing is that it is not just, we don't just grant scholarships, it's a leadership development organization, and Della has been our, at the helm of it for the past six years, and she's really um, brought a great deal of um, life and energy and strength to the program. So I have to thank her for years of hard work, and we hope at some point we will also have a Jackie Robinson Museum as her, one of her other projects. Um, in two years. You heard it from Della. <laughs> um, so, so legacy. And there are other areas we see legacy. Um, but children is, has been the heart of what my family has done. So I do a program with Major League Baseball uh, that's in schools across the country. Also character education. And our theme is overcoming obstacles or breaking barriers. And we have kids um, that have um, studied what an obstacle is, and then they write an essay as part of a national essay contest. We get thousands of essays from kids who write about how Jackie Rob one of Jackie Robinson's nine values have helped, has helped them get to the get over their barrier. So, for example, our grand prize winner this year is a fifth grader out of Indianapolis, and she is Indian, and as she said, from India, and she um, has been bullied um, by girls because of her skin color. And so she finally uh, discovered dance, and she was so excited because she had this Mondays where she could go to dance class, which she loved. And she got the dance class, and the, and the girls have been bullying her at dance class as well. So she has gone, you know, she's taken the next step. It was always about getting over that barrier and has, um, you know, really made her school and her parents and all aware of what's going on so she can get some help. So, anyway, it's um, a very wonderful program, but uh, my mother uh, turns 90 this year, and uh, you will see her if you watch the game on Sunday, and LaTroy will be, you pitching, LaTroy, hopefully pitching, <laughs> and we're at number 42, and, um, and my mother will be there, and she may wear her yellow, she might wear her yellow jacket again, so she's very visible, but she's uh, very gorgeous, and very much alive, and very much still active in the foundation. So, thank you all. So, uh, that concludes our panel. Um, stick around, we'll be right back with the baseball project. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the Ballpark Bums. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that panel discussion. Uh, I know I did when I first listened to it, and I really hope you guys got out of it what I got out of it. Um, next up, we got the interview with uh, Boots Day. Uh, this was live at uh, historic Bosey Field, where they filmed uh, League of Their Own, and uh, I got 
to sit down with Boots Day. It's a short interview, but I think it's very powerful, and you guys will learn a lot. So here's uh, the interview with Boots Day, and I hope you guys enjoy it, and we'll see you guys after it. This is Tom Quiet. I'm sitting here with uh, Boots Day. Say hi. Hi. Um, so you played uh, in the majors for six years, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it? Did you play uh, high school? Or what was it? For people that don't know who you are, uh, what, how'd you get your start in baseball? Uh, just you know, like like everybody else. I mean, I started in Little League and uh, Babe Ruth League, high school, and then uh, I signed out of high school. Okay, you get signed right out of high school. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you didn't play college ball no. anywhere? No. Uh, what was the uh, signing process like? Did you get drafted or did you just no, sign I on? No, I signed as a free agent. Free agent? Free agent signed, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, who did you uh, sign with? St. Louis. St. Louis? Uh, yeah. And you went through their farm system? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, going through the farm system? What was that process like? Well, it was just you know, like every year or something different. You know, you go to A ball, double A, triple A, and then hopefully get to the big leagues. Yeah. How many uh, years did you spend in their uh, farm system? I was uh, three and a half years, and then I got called up to the big leagues in my fourth year. Okay. Um, and then you went from St. Louis to Chicago. Chicago. Cubs, yep. Uh, and then Montreal. Did, and then Montreal. Uh, who did you play, or what year were you with the uh, Cubs? Cubs, I was in 70, 1970. 1970. Okay. What was the transition from being a player to a coach? And how, or, well, I guess the first question should be, how long have you been coaching? Oh, uh, <laughs> Since 1980. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was the transition from being a player to a coach? Uh, it wasn't that bad a transition. It was. It was. It was. The first year was kind of kind of rough because I, I really wasn't used to it and, and had to had to get my feet wet and see what it was like. And but I I mean the, the transition wasn't really that bad. I mean uh, it, I had you know I was wishing and hoping I was still playing, but you know the, the unfortunate thing was uh, it wasn't going to happen. So I just bared down and said, well, I guess you forget about playing anymore and just start doing, coaching and stuff. So. Have you been coaching? Did you coach affiliated ball or have you been coaching basically independent? No, no, I've coached. I've only been independent ball five years. Okay. And I've been affiliation the whole time. Um, what's being uh, playing ball in the seventies? What's the biggest difference between the game then and the game nowadays? Or like, have you noticed any? Well, the game game never changes. The game's always played the same. The, you know, the people change. You know, they're they're bigger and stronger than they were when I played. Today, they, you know, they lift the weights. We couldn't lift the weights when I played. Now they they got weight rooms in, in both, uh, both clubhouses, and uh, we get fined if we lift the weights when I played. And I mean, like I said, they're bigger, stronger. Uh, they, you know, they they still got to throw the ball over the plate, so it doesn't matter. You know? Yeah. Um, you played in Canada for four years, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, is baseball perceived differently in Canada, or what's it like playing? No, no, it's the same. It's, it's matter of fact, they're 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 really in Montreal where I was at. They were they were really really great fans. They were, they they understood the game because they did Dodgers AAA team for years and years and years and years. I mean, hey, they 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 were schooled pretty well on on, on baseball, and they they were great fans. So it's sad to see that they don't have a team in and got moved to Washington. And yeah, it was that's kind of sad. kind of sad to see it go. But uh, you know, once you know, when when you don't support the team, you know, stuff happens. And yeah. uh, they they didn't uh, when they when they moved from Jerry Park to the the big old 
it was just too big of a place for baseball. And, 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 and the, like the fans, you'd have like 20,000 people in the stands, look like 10. Yeah. It was so huge, you know, yeah. big everybody's separated all around. It was, there was nobody, you know, they weren't close by, and it looked like there was like little ants all over the place. Who's your uh, biggest influence in baseball? Uh, actually, my biggest influence was my mother. I mean, she, she, little league, she went to every game I played. High school, she every, went went to every game I played. Uh, and she, you know, she, she, she was, my, you know, my biggest supporter, my biggest fan. Yeah. And uh, her and my dad, and uh, uh, other than that, and baseball, baseball wise, when I when I signed with the Cardinals, they had uh, some pretty good managers in their system. They had, you know, Sparky Anderson was in there, an A ball. Uh, a guy named Ron Plaza, who was, I think, one of my the best coaches I've ever played for, mm-hmm. uh, totally in baseball. Uh, he was very, very intelligent. Taught me a lot of how to how to play the game professionally. Mm-hmm. He, he knew how to professionalize you. you know, and that's what lot, some people don't realize. You know, they just go and just say, "Well, you just go and play the game." Mm-hmm. You know, like, you go to the game, play the game, but you also have to figure out how to play the game yeah. and how to how to handle yourself. Yeah. And he was he was one of he was a, he was a big mentor. Of mine, he was, he was the best. Like I said, he was the best manager I ever played for. What about uh, player-wise? Growing up, who did who did you try and idolize yourself after? Well, my well, I grew up I grew up in upstate New York, but my my idol was Stan Musial. Mm-hmm. I mean, they we have, you know I was growing up with Mickey Mantle, Duke Snyder, Willie Mays. Yeah. I didn't like anyone. I, Musial was my guy. I didn't yeah. like any one of those guys. So, <laughs> and I watch him every day. <laughs> yeah. um, let's see. Was your uh, father, or did you play any other uh, sports other than baseball growing up? Oh yeah, I played high school. Uh, well, I played football my freshman year. I tore my knee up. And I never played again. But I played uh, four years of basketball okay. in high school. Yeah. Um, so you got six years in the majors. Yeah. Uh, do you are you content with that career, or do you kind of wish you would have gotten another break somewhere, or wish you had done something a little bit different? No, I mean that was that, that everything else. That, that stuff takes care of itself. You know, you get you. I mean, you played your hardest and. and and whatever happens, happens. I mean, you, you really have no, you have control over it, but you don't have control over it. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, when they say, you know, we're going to send you down, you might not, never get back up again. Yeah. So you, you, you never know what's going to happen, you know, in that thing. But I, I've, I've been very fortunate, been, you know, been in the game 48 years and professionally. So, I mean, I, I, I have everything, uh, you know, to gain. I don't have nothing to gain, nothing to lose. So I'm, I'm here and, uh, I'll just keep going as long as I can. Yeah. Um, when you were betting, who was a pitcher that you always wanted to play against but never got a chance to that was, like, in the same – playing at the same time you were? Yeah, I, I, I bet against pretty much everybody. I, you know, Ryan, Seaver, Gibson, uh, oh, uh, Jim Bunning. I mean, I, I faced everybody that I – I mean, there's guys in the American – I never played in the American League. There's guys in the American League I'd like to hit off, but I, I never had a chance. Okay. Um, was there anybody that ever gave you like a, a tidbit of information that like completely changed your career and how you approached the game of baseball? Or well, the guy, well, the guy that kept me in leagues was Gene Mock, okay. the manager in Montreal. Uh, he worked on me. I was struggling a little bit in 1971, and uh, he took me under his wing, kind of. And, and, and I used to come hit extra every day and every day, and he, I had a pretty good year that. Finished up with a pretty good year in '71, and then it kept me four more years in the big leagues. So he, he's, he, he was probably the biggest influence that kept me in the big leagues. Um, do, do you have any other athletes in your family, like your mom or dad or anybody? No. 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 
my, my brother next to me, I'm the youngest, my next youngest, uh, he, he played, he was a track guy, and he played a little bit of football and bas- uh, basketball, but uh, no, no, nobody else did anything. Um, you spent a lot of time on the road being in, in majors and especially in the minors and the unaffiliated teams. What do you do to pass time? Uh, just, uh, I mean, <laughs> you wake up and go and eat and just relax. And uh, I, I like to do I like to do a lot of crossword puzzles and uh, crypto quips and uh, uh, but I do I do them every day. Just, uh, just stay sharp, you know. Keep keep my mind going. Have you uh, coached anybody in the minors and in, or in, since? Uh, have you coached anybody that's like of stature playing in the big leagues now? Or? Oh, oh, many many guys. I mean, <laughs> can't name them all. I mean, was, I've coached and I've played with, you know. But I've coached. You know, the, the latest guys are Billy Butler with Kansas City and Mike Avilas with Boston and geez, uh, who else? Coco Crisp. Uh, there's there's tons. Mitch Meyer, uh, a lot of guys from Kansas City, and uh, uh, I mean, like some guys from the Cardinals, Skip Schumacher. Uh, I mean, there's there's been several several guys that coach. There's too many too many to name. Um, being a coach, what can you say, or what what do you usually tell the guys to get them fired up if they're going into like the bottom of the ninth, down one or two? In a big pressure situation, what do you tell the guys? To I, I, don't, I don't. I don't get involved in that. I just. I tell them just go up there, and just have a good at bat. I don't. I don't. I don't tell them anything. I just, you know, just go up there, know the situation, know what's going on, and and, and adhere to that. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't like telling people stuff, especially during a game in a dugout. I'll do it the next day in the cage. I don't like talking in the dugout. Tell them because they're they're too involved in the game. I don't want to. I don't want to mess anything up like that. Okay. Put too, too, too many things in their head, and they, they start wondering. Yeah. And worrying. Well, I just keep it short for this one because um, in their head, and they they start wondering. Else, you have to say any stories you want to share? Or? No, not really. I mean, I I was lucky enough to play in Bill Stolman's uh, second no hitter he threw in Montreal. Mm-hmm. I played in, in that one against the Mets in '72. Yeah. I played played against that one, and, but other than that, it's really not. A whole lot, you know. That was, that was my probably the biggest highlight. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, this is uh, Tom Quiet. I'm here with uh, or actually, how did, and your nickname's the Boots? Boots, yeah. How did you get that nickname? Uh, it's, a, it's a long story. <laughs> I've had it my whole life. Okay. I mean, I, I, I've had it since I was a baby. So I mean, it's I, my real name. I never, I never called my real name. Okay. So. I don't even know what my real name is. Nobody calls yet, so. Okay. <laughs> um, well, that's all I had for today, so thank you very all right, much. All right, Tom, yep. all right, take care. All right. And that's it, folks. That's it for this week's episode of the Ballpark Bums. Um, if you want to contact us about sponsorship, if you want us to promote your company, sponsor your company, uh, you can email us at ballparkbums at yahoo.com. Or if you want to see us on Twitter, tweet us. Start a hashtag. It's uh, ballpark underscore bums. And we even have a uh, Facebook group now. It's uh, facebook.com backslash ballpark bums. Uh, yeah, we're doing it. I mean, we got social media going. We got the podcast. Uh, we love to hear the fans' feedback. Feel free. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. It was kind of a double threat. You had Boots Day, who was very entertaining, had some very cool stories. And then you had the panel discussion about Jackie Robinson, which also had a lot of great stories. So I hope this kept you entertained, and I will see you next week. See you later.